So hi everyone. This is Fion from Hong Kong Peace Associations of Nevada. And today, the, this webinar is our third webinar for the economics, economics of the entertainment. And of course, Las Vegas is the capital, entertainment capital of the world. So um, our co-hosts are Smith, Gabriel, Watchers and Law Firm, and based in Lander. Miller Clapham's accounting firm based in San Francisco. They are the top 100 certified law firms in, in North America. And we have a Hong Kong Association of Atlanta and also Hong Kong Business Association of Nevada. And we also would like to give our thanks to our partner. We have the Georgia's Department of Economics, Econo Economics Development and Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, Hong Kong Trade Development Council, they are based in Los Angeles, the office. And we also have our Hong Kong Association's family. We have, they are Hong Kong Association Southern California, Hong Kong Associations in North California, Hong Kong Associations of New York, and Hong Kong Business Associations of Midwest. And the Midwest office is based in Chicago. And our last one is Hong Kong Association, the greatest China of Hong Kong Association of Washington. They are based in Seattle. And today we are very fortunate. We have our, since we are hosted in, in with Hong Kong Business Association in Nevada, we have our small business administrations District Director Joe Amato to share with us as our guest speaker, and he will be our take care of the opening speak opening speech and the background little bit backgrounds about Joe. Joe is a is an experienced entrepreneur, and he also handled a small business lending for over the past 30 some years. In 2017, he assumed the positions, moved to Las Vegas, take over the small business administration office. I personally shared the business with him since 2017, and I witnessed all the change, how he tried to de develop a diverse and more vibrant and more energetic small business community in the state of Las Vegas and city of Las Vegas. And Joe, now is the stage passed to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Fion, and uh, thank you all the sponsors of this event. Um, as I just shared with some of my panelists, uh, this is my 168th webinar since the beginning of COVID. So uh, to say the least, I'm either a veteran or worn out. I haven't decided what, um, but definitely I've learned about Zoom and all the other webinar uh, platforms very, very well. Um, this is an amazing opportunity for me to, to be a part of uh, an organizational um, event like this, um, especially with the participating partners um, that are involved in this, in this uh, seminar webinar today. Um, you know, the SBA has definitely made a very large sea change in the direction um, from what it normally had done, which is basically just guaranteeing loans and supporting the small business community, supporting the underserved community, and uh, trying to get access to capital, to buy real estate, to buy fixed assets, so on and so forth. 
And we became in the last 18 months, the, uh, the king of stimulus, um, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars have passed through the small business administration, through the PPP program, um, through the idle program, which is still ongoing through the end of this year, um, through the SVOG program, the shuttered venues opportunity grant, which directly was aimed at the entertainment industry um, and the RRF program, the restaurant revitalization program, which was also a major part of the hospitality industry, along with the entertainment industry, which was either shuttered, completely closed down, or their opportunities for, for business, for, for, port, for performance, for just making a livelihood were, were drastically affected by the, the actions taken by both the government, uh, federal, state, and local governments in combating the pandemic. Um, we basically, over the last almost two years, 18 plus months, have been in the forefront of trying to help the industries that were hit the hardest. Um, entertainment industry being one of the hardest hits, without a doubt. And uh, what we're seeing is that um, there was some participation with the Shuttered Venues Program, which we had an excess of, well, almost about $30 uh, billion that was dispersed. And believe it or not, uh, some of the heaviest areas that received funding were not only New York, but Nevada, um, the state of Georgia, the state of Texas, and the state of California, um, where there is a lot of um, live entertainment that goes on on a regular basis. And that's where really shuttered venues was, was focused at. Um, we are also in constant contact with the banking industry on a, uh, both a statewide and a national level, because you know, the, the effects of the pandemic um, affected everyone, not only what you saw on screen or on stage or, or the music that you heard um, in the entertainment industry, but it affected the whole supply chain. Everybody that supported the industry were also affected. In some cases, PPP and Idol and Chartered Venues helped those entities, um, but I still think, and I, I make this a very profound um, part of my daily efforts, um, I still think that there's a lot of work to be done. I think 2022, yes. 2023 will be very, very instrumental, and both the banking and investment industry will be focused on that. So again, I thank you for that op this opportunity to make the opening remarks. Um, I'm looking forward to um, hearing what's going to be said today. And um, you know, again, Fiona, anytime I can be helpful to you in my position as district director for the SBA, um, we're here to help and we're here to serve. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Really, thank you. Yeah, I saw you have been doing so much and do so, such a great job in past four years for our city. I'm very grateful. So also the city is very fortunate. So, um, and again, um, since we are Hong Kong Business Associations, we have 12 chapters in all over America. So that's what is our goal in 2022. We are going to do an entertainment forum, of course, led by SRG, SGRs, law firms, and also partner with the Miller Car Plans to help, to help us to foster and keep looking for the new ways of entertainment. And Las Vegas will never die. We will always be the entertainment capital of the world. And next, um, I have to really give a lot of credit. It's Michael, Michael Reason. Michael Reason, he is in charge for whole this event. This is our third webinar. I first engaged with Mike was in April. 
and um, he has been stuck with all the all the topics is so relevant to different different type of entertainment from movie filmings and all the legal parks and esports and online gaming how it changed from april's march is our second webinar and this is our third so but michael himself is an ip attorney he um also with a is an entertainment attorney as well he also a um patent solicitor from uk and his background is very diverse so he technically in charge for all this webinar create a topic letting us how to look at different way and how the income sourcings and the talent has is a shipping in whole entertainment entertainment landscape and michael really thankful please take over the platform your turn thank you fian uh, such kind words and, and thank you again joe for the opening remarks uh, we've got uh, essentially two halves of today's presentation, which the focus is titled Follow the Money. And we're going to keep this kind of follow the money construct applied to uh, both film uh, development and financing, as well as music. And uh, we, we've got it broken down into two main parts today. Uh, the first part is going to be on the finance part. And then the second is looking at revenue and uh, a lot of topics with regard to back end. So with that outlaid, I'd like to introduce our panelists uh, again. Um, Michael Risen here is moderating uh, with Smith, Gambrell and Russell. We've got uh, Vince Leone, partner and CPA at Miller Kaplan, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Tyler Gold and Grady Craig, um, VPs out of Bondit Media Capital. Uh, who will be focusing on the front part. Thank you all. Uh, Vince, Tyler, Grady, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Michael. Glad to be a part of the panel. Great. So just to kind of get everybody going and, and, uh, and kick us off before I turn it over to, uh, to Bonded Media here, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're, what we're seeing as far as uh, growth and effective pandemic and everything kind of in the film and music, I think this will just kind of get everybody going. I've got a few polling questions as well, but this was published by The Economist uh, prior to the real data hitting home in 2021. Uh, but you see, as far as box office revenues that were being reported through their data, uh, somewhat of a flattening before we came into 2020, or uh, to the end of 2020, that is, except for uh, the China market, with, uh, which had a great increase uh, coming into 2020 before COVID-19. But this is just one channel of revenue when we're talking about uh, film and uh, film media. So let me just ask everybody a polling question, and I hope that Kernali can help me with this, with polling the audience. Let's just find out from this audience, um, how many streaming services does your household subscribe to? Uh, none, one, two to three, or more than three? We'll give that about 30 seconds, get some numbers up and, uh, and see what we have here. All right, we're still got numbers coming in, but I'll, I'll tell you we're over 50% of those that are polled here in today's audience have more than three services, 
of our audience, um, 25%, two to three services, and uh, the remainder is one or none. Why, why do I ask this question to get us going? Why, I think it's probably obvious on its face, but uh, we've got uh, different channels here, not just the big screen anymore, right? We've got uh, all these different streaming services that have come up making big noise, uh, Netflix, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, Hulu, I mean, you, you, you name it. Everybody's announcing their own service and coming out, and uh, this is just a new channel uh, for potential revenue. For potential sales, you, you can put together your own film and, and have another outlet for distribution. Uh, so moving forward, let's flip it onto the music side just to keep it even. What's your preferred format when consuming music? So let, let's go back and ask this one if we can get that second poll going. Uh, vinyl, cassette or CD, download, so downloading singles or albums or streaming service. What's your preferred format? You know, as people are answering this poll, I'll say that it's really interesting watching and living through all of these different formats and seeing a resurgence back to vinyl. There are some niche industries that are pressing more vinyl than, than they ever have. So, uh, all right, as we close in on this poll, again, I don't think it's any surprise that nearly 50% of those polled here today um, where um, I'm not seeing the results properly here, Cronali, but as I was seeing it go up, it looked like we had download and streaming service. No, you know, no, no surprise there. What does that mean to us? Well, RIAA published their uh, data for formats, and this is hard to read year over year, but the general theme that we've seen in, this, in these presentations is as the format changes, revenue uh, was peaking out here in the late 90s, early 2000s under the format of CD, but we see a dip in overall revenue in the industry. We're coming back to those all-time highs, but we've got different formats. No surprise that those format, formats are in the digital space, green here representing uh, download and streaming. So what, what's the point in saying all of this? Well, throughout this whole process that we get into, whether you're talking about the financing side or talking about the revenue side, we've got to embrace the new channels of revenue, the new channels of distribution. And that affects how is that dollar broken up? Who's getting a piece of that dollar on the recruitment side? So we, we, we know it costs money to make movies. We know it costs money to make music and to distribute all of these. How do we break it up when we start getting the revenue? And these streams of, of, of commerce that have, that have changed and developed in the digital age provide a whole new calculus on how that is, uh, how that is analyzed. Uh, so with, with that opener, I'll kick it back and, and reintroduce Tyler and Grady from Bondit Media Capital, also Buffalo 8 Production Services. And uh, they're going to walk us through uh, film finance. So let me switch over to their presentation. Tyler, and Grady, we'll get you going here right now. All right. I hope everyone's seeing your slides. Is that right? That's right. Great. Tyler, you muted. Great. Um, 
so yeah, we can jump right into it if you want to jump ahead to the to the next slide, Michael. Um, uh, yeah, actually, so one second here. Sorry, I got the yeah. Wrong no one. worries. Yeah, here, let me do this again. My apologies. There we go. Is that is everyone seeing your slides or not? Still not. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see it. Hopefully the the um well great. So yeah, just jumping right into it. So a little bit of background on our companies. Um, so we have Bonded Media Capital, which is our financing arm. We have uh, Buffalo Productions, which is our production arm. And then we own a payroll company called uh, ABS Payroll. And so Bonded Media Capital is a senior debt financier. Um, we manage institutional capital. Uh, we're owned 51% by a private equity company. Um, based out of South Carolina and New York. And 90% of our portfolio is lending to single picture film and television company or film and television productions. Um, we, we finance mostly in the sub $20 million budget range. Um, and that, that allows us to be a flexible solution um, for productions and um, allow us to provide capital for these productions to get through principal photography all the way through delivery to a distributor, whether that's a streamer, whether that's a traditional theatrical distributor. Um, you know, we're, we're essentially financing against executed sales prior to the film going into production. Um, so, it's not really your traditional studio model or private equity model where you're financing production and then hoping the project sells afterwards. You know, there's, there's a firm agreement in place with the distributor prior to going into production based off of a package. And we'll get into what, what a package looks like in a little bit. Um, and we're able to lend against that, knowing that there is a clear path to repayment and a firm value associated with that. Um, Buffalo Aid is our production arm. We provide um, a bunch of different services depending on what stage um, your project is in. So we have a development division that helps build budgets and schedules and pitch decks um, and help package and shop projects. We have a physical production services division as well. We have a post-production services division, um, and then we have a distribution division for already completed projects. And then ABS Payroll is a little more self-explanatory, uh, just payroll processing company. Um, so that's a little background on Bond that you can skip ahead to, to the next slide. Great, you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, this slide kind of covers the addressable market for independent debt financiers and, and financiers in the uh, filmmaking space. Um, Bonded, we play in this in the uh, budget range, usually below twenty million, where banks either don't see the you know the risk controls as as sufficient for them to get involved, and probably not the 
phenomenal return that they that they'd otherwise have on a studio level production. Um, and, and that being said, the projects that we do finance, we don't we don't require completion bonds. We have other ways to put controls in place, uh, which actually allows cheaper, uh, you know, more affordable budgets, not having to pay for that completion bond. Um, and so you'll see in the step diagram, uh, the, the different levels of the budgets and the number of productions in those budget ranges that are being produced uh, on an annual basis um, and the, the market that bond it's actually targeting. So, yeah, so if, if you kind of, I'm oh, sorry, you want go to ahead. go ahead for this one, Grady? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that uh, similar to the slide you showed earlier, Michael, um, just an overview on, on how filmmakers should think about when it makes sense for financiers or investors to get involved in projects. Uh, everything starts with the script and developing a story. Uh, and then beyond that, it's, it's what are the logistics that are associated with that script? Extras, number of scenes, shooting days, production budget, um, all that. And so that's when filmmakers start to, to team with directors and producers to put together a package pitch deck to take out and convince talent or partners or production companies or investors to come on board. Uh, the key being for investors, how do they make their money back and, and what's the requirement or commitment and associated risks on any of these stories um, and, and how that actually turns into monetary gain for them uh, once it's produced and on the screen. Yeah, I mean, I think Grady hit most of the points on the slides. So we can jump ahead to the next one. I just, as we go ahead, let me ask yes. one question of you both. You know, as as one goes through this development and trying to um, pitch this and obviously get it financed, you mentioned under uh, Bonded Media Capital, the focus is, look, we already, we already have um, these distribution agreements in place so there's there's less of that um you know i guess what what am i looking for less risk profile with regard to that can can you comment at all about how how the different channels including streaming services has changed that approach with regard to finding distribution in different venues uh, different channels i mean yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good question, Michael. So I would say streamers have, have I, it really depends on um, sort of what sort of budget range um, you're, you're working in. So there, there's no shortage of demand for content right now. I know you showed that slide earlier about global box office revenues declining. Um, and that, that has taken away one fairly critical aspect of being able to finance your film, which is, you know, taking the risk of performance at the box office and really hoping that the film performs well and in, in investors being able to see significant upside on the back end. Um, in terms of equity investors, that's, that's the, those are the parties that are most affected by this shift. Um, you're, you're not quite as the, just the back end is not nearly as lucrative today as it once was. And so 
equity investors have to take um, a much more more calculated risk um, and factor that in when trying to finance a project, um, knowing that most of the rights, uh, if it's flipped to a streamer, are going to be bought out in perpetuity for essentially a set number. You know, you're no longer just seeing these these home runs. I think everyone refers to it as you hit a lot of singles or doubles, but no no more home runs. Um, and so the equity investing aspect is a little bit more challenging to come by. Um, from Bondit's perspective, we're not too affected by this position because we are essentially repaid prior to the film getting exploited and released. You know, we're we're getting taken out by the initial advance by a streamer or a distributor um, before they've exploited the film in a given territory. And so we're not relying on the film's performance in that territory and then, you know, recouping from receipts um, in the waterfall. You know, we're, we're essentially top of the stack and get repaid out first um, and are largely just taking the production risk as opposed to the film's performance risk on the back end. And, yeah. and you mentioned you mentioned with that production risk that that you've got some internal structure in place that that you're not even de-risking by having to take a completion bond or some type of completion coverage. So that that's a unique model uh, to, to bond it. Would you say? Yeah, it's it's having ABS payroll. Uh, you know, oversee a lot of the production, even even some vetted line producers that we've worked with or our team in New Mexico, uh, as well as once that peak uh, risk shifts over to the post-production side, our post house handling the delivery and making sure that all the specs and timelines for certain milestones are met uh, and adhered to for the distributor's requirements. Um, and so for us, it's huge to, to just see how our capital is being used throughout a production. Yeah. yeah, so kind of speaking a little bit um, to, you know, the way a finance plan breaks down for an individual production, um, you don't, I, I should caveat this by saying there's, there's a number of different ways to put together a project and a finance plan. And, you know, some projects will be financed 100% with equity. Other projects will be financed 100% with debt. Um, but the, I think the key piece is, is knowing sort of what, what the differentiation is uh, between each different source of capital. Um, so Bondit's a senior debt financier. Um, we are essentially first position against the world. We are getting taken out prior to a film, you know, being released and exploited in the territory. And, you know, 90% of the time we are financing productions that have already been um, sold to a distributor. Um, and so that, that's kind of the senior debt piece. The equity piece is, you know, earlier, typically earlier stage funding where an investor is taking ownership of the project and, so they, they have a much riskier position um, because they're joining much earlier. Um, but, you know, in, in addition to that risk, they have a much higher return um, or, you know, potential return should the film perform really well. And so kind of going back to the comment earlier with, you know, back ends being reduced, um, it's, it's a little bit 
more challenging for equity investors to see sort of the lucrative return that you used to see on some of these massive box office deals. Um, Ty, that being Ty, I just say, I just say, um, it's, it's not that they don't have the potential to see large returns. It's just they're, they're in it for a longer term. Uh, you know, you're taking out the box office window for a film's exploitation completely where that would usually go for, you know, 30, 60, 90 days in theaters. And then you'd go to a streamer and then you go to a T-Bot platform and then a bot and continue to, to relicense it after those five, 10 year terms, whatever the distributor or streamer is requiring. Um, and so may, maybe you don't make your money back on the, on the streaming term of five to seven years. Maybe it's the next term at TVOD, AVOD and, and, and what have you. So it might just be a 30, 40, 50, sometimes your time horizon uh, before, they, before they see uh, a full return. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely a good point. Um, and then another, another avenue for, um, for financing your film is financing against um, tax incentives. And, you know, this is why you see many different projects shooting in Georgia or shooting in Alabama. I know Nevada has a pretty robust um, tax credit program as well. So, um, Michael, I don't know if, if I should kind of explain the, the mechanics of why tax credits are earned and how you advance against that, or should I uh, assume I, I, most, most people kind of know? It might be worth just mentioning in brief, uh, we did a, a whole nother session outside of this on that, and I can share a link at the end um, to at least Georgia tax credit. Uh, we, we've got an hour uh, explaining those details if any of the audience is specifically interested in the Georgia tax incentive program. But generally speaking, I think it's good for this audience to hear something, Tyler. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so when you spend a significant amount of money in a state, as a film production does on local labor and different qualifying expenses, in order to incentivize productions to come and shoot in that state, um, states will uh, essentially give a portion of the qualified spend back um, once, once all that money has been spent, usually it, it takes about 10 to 12 months for that money to come back to production. So in the meantime, you can have a tax credit lender, um, which is essentially another form of senior debt financier. They're just, um, in a little bit of a different position in the waterfall than, um, than a, a lender that's lending against distribution or sales receipts, um, but anyways, the a tax credit lender will come in and provide the capital that you're going to be receiving back from the state at a later date. And they're just providing that, that uh, liquidity for, for the production so you can get through um, and, and deliver your film. Um, and then just touching briefly on mezzanine debt. So this is debt that sits you know, directly beneath the senior lender. Um, it is, it's not quite as risky as equity, um, but typically mezzanine lenders are lending against unsold territories as opposed to um, territories that have already been sold prior to going into production. Can you change the slide, Michael? It kind of illustrates that point. This is a model uh, speaking to what Tyler's um, referencing in regards to the the waterfall. Uh, And this is something we use as a tool on our side to basically speculate sales agents estimates 
for a certain genre with a certain cast. Um, and we take their downside, we'll take their takes, their asks, and then we do our own downside on what we actually expect the, the film will sell in, in each of these territories. And then as you start to take out sales fees, SAG and guild fees, um, the senior debt, mezzanine debt potentially, um, and, and so you start seeing it come down to the equity players and producers and, and contingency and all that. Um, this is kind of, it puts that into perspective on uh, the hierarchy of, of those involved uh, when it comes to financing these projects. Uh, I can speak you, to you want to go for this one? Yeah, Grady. Yeah. Um, I was alluding to this a little bit earlier when Michael asked about how Bondit controls some of the risks uh, on these productions. This graph in the blue illustrates, uh, you know, this is all arbitrary, but risk potential for any film. So everything's riskier in pre-production when you're trying to put together the talent and, and meet their schedules, you're putting together the directors. And so that's usually when the equity comes in play here um, to get the, you know, get the, the production moving and, and put in pieces in place. Then you jump up when production actually starts to make sure all the prep that you've done over the last several weeks or months is going to execute on time and on budget. Um, no, no hiccups, no mistakes, no delays, no COVID risk, uh, which was huge uh, during the past two years. Um, and then after you get over that hump, that's when you deliver the audio and video assets to a post-production facility. They're going to edit this thing over the next couple of weeks, make sure that it's acceptable for the distributor to buy the film and, and, and pay for it, uh, pay for that complete asset. Um, and then as you go further, for those who are tax credit lenders, you're really just waiting for the audits to come back uh, to make sure all the expected qualified expenses that you um, anticipated going into production were actually you know, transacted and, and qualify. And um, the state will then release the tax credit on their own time. Um, takes a little bit longer. You'd probably see the project release before in theaters before uh, that actually pays out. Um, I, I think this is a good time, if, if you don't mind, it's specific to Bondit's family. Uh, Bondit Media Capital uh, began, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear um, maybe a brief history as it relates to, to de-risking, because it, it seems like a, a really uh, synergistic vertical integration to have a production services company, a payroll company, all working with a senior lender under the mm -hmm. same roof to make sure that everything's staying tight. I mean, I mean, that just seems like it's a natural convergence, but I'd like to hear the story. Yeah, I'd say people confuse Bondit as a completion bond company because of the name. And yeah. it's really draws back to its uh, history as financing union bonds uh, and SAG deposits, um, which was SAG de demanding, uh, you know, their actors are, their fees are put into an escrow account basically before you go into production. And then once production is wrapped, that's released. Uh, that's become increasingly more difficult to get those bonds back. So we've actually um, drifted away from that financial service and found a need in the minimum guarantee and, and tax lending space. Um, and as we, 
you know, as more controls needed to be thought about how we can protect uh, our investment, we started working with producers, trying different divisions. We had a talent management division at one point, marketing division, um, development division still exists. Uh, the things that, like you said, naturally converged were post-production, which uh, clearly benefits from us paying for films that they want to uh, work on and produce. Um, and them also controlling everything that we need uh, in terms of our shareholders' commitments um, in terms of delivering the film. Uh, and the same with ABS payroll. That's just another oversight and uh, eyes on set for us, um, you know, in a U.S. production. Right. Yeah, and this this next slide kind of touches on that that point that we were just talking about is, you know, different areas where we have um, just different touch points and and ways to kind of control or have insights into production. Um, so kind of beginning on the development side, kind of prior to Bondit getting involved, we do have an executive producer services division that helps build out these early stage projects, you know, building budgets and schedules and pitch decks, trying to attach talent, trying to bring on a sales agent or a distributor. Um, once you're able to, you know, fully package the project, you have sales attached, um, you're really starting to workshop the finance plan. That's where Bondit gets involved kind of right at that next stage, figuring out how much we're able to loan to production. You know, is it enough to meet the budgeted strike price? And, you, you know, it, I, I would say Bondit effectively does self-bond our own projects. And that kind of comes from all of these different uh, controls and oversights um, that we have. And it also comes from the fact that our, that our founders, uh, Matthew Helderman and Luke Taylor, were actually producers before they came into um, building out Bondit. So they, they know the pain points of, you know, what filmmakers are working through when they're on set, you know, at what times that uh, capital is, is really needed and you know, what other sorts of, of uh, areas we can be flexible and then areas that we need to be more rigid on. Um, and so that's kind of how we, we've built our model as being filmmaker friendly um, and, and having that knowledge of production um, and, you know, having the, those different insights and in, in controls. So this slide kind of rehashes a lot of the points that we've, that we've touched on. You know, we have our physical production services division down in New Mexico, not all bonded projects, um, obviously film in New Mexico. I'm actually in Alabama right now on a film set. Um, so, you know, some projects that, that do use that production services division, it's just, you know, another way to have more insight. Um, most of our projects do use our post house um, since bonded's repayment is so closely tied to delivering to a distributor, just being able to, um, have oversight over the asset and over the delivery process is really, really valuable to our model. Um, and then, yeah, on, on the repayment side as well, we, we've, we've developed strong relationships with buyers so that, you know, in an event, um, one, one buyer defaults, then we have the ability to approach others and recoup our investment through reselling the film. 
that was a good run through, uh, Grady and Tyler. I really appreciate it. Um, with regard to audience outreach, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to plug here as we kind of close on finance and move into the revenue side of our presentation? Yeah, I said our emails are here, both of our first names, Grady and Tyler at bondit.us. Um, for any projects that are either at the script stage or further along in the finishing funds, we'll take a look at it all and, and see if anything on our Buffalo production side can support getting it to a place where Bonnet Media Capital can invest in the project. Great. Well, thank you both again. And let me just do a switch here. So I hope that everybody's back to the slides. Uh, can I get someone confirm that we're back on to my slides? Profit. That right? Everyone seeing that? Good. All right. So we, we talked about finance and part of that discussion, we're looking at risk and de-risk with regard to uh, whether you already have agreements, pre-sales, distribution, and specifically on the equity side or the longer run side, we've got question of does, does this asset make any money? You know, is there any profit? So again, to kind of keep everybody interacting, Let's, uh, let's do one more poll. Um, and this is just pulled off of uh, one website, but it proves a point. So according to ScreenRant.com, what's the most profitable feature film of all time? Uh, Rocky, original, 1976. Gone with the Wind, 39. Paranormal Activity, 2007. Or Mad Max, the original, 1979. I'll let some people make some guesses here. And again... Uh, this is this will prove an interesting point here, uh, regardless of the answer. All right, that's been about 36. We'll end the poll there, and it looks like 56 of you said Gone with the Wind, 25% said Paranormal Activity, 13% said Rocky and Mad Max. According to ScreenRant.com, it's Mad Max 1979. Uh, the question is. What do we mean by profit, profitable? And that gets me to the next point. So this was all transition. The point that they'll make, you can go to screenrant.com and look at this. The point they were making is just looking at what did it take to actually complete the film itself, Mad Max, versus what did it take in in gross? And they looked at that factor uh, comparing the two, and that was their profitability metric. But that really begs the question, what does it all mean? So we get into all these terms now. We're going to shift over and start talking about the other side of this or the other, the other side of the spectrum here is you've got this asset finance, whether it's a video game, whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a record or an album, it's, it's there. It's out there. You're ready to distribute and you're ready to see if it makes any money. Um, well, we talk about this waterfall and, and thanks to Tyler and Grady for putting together a really interesting slide on different positions in the debt and equity um, stack in the waterfall. Part of this has to do with who, who gets what on that revenue dollar. And this is where the agreements come in. This is where the terminology comes in. And it's, uh, it's, been, it's been reported that uh, in the film space, this idea of profit participation or this equity share among talent, producers, 
actors and the studio production, uh, the, the talent gets a share of, of what they call the back end. So if you go back to 1936, uh, Groucho Marx agreed uh, to star in a film and he agreed that compensation of 15% of quote unquote gross receipts um, from MGM. So we start in 1936 with gross receipts. Let's fast forward 50 years and we're still looking at these types of terminology, gross receipts, all these big names in the 80s and 90s still having profit participation agreements using very talent beneficial terms for their accounting and lots of uh, big movies, lots of big uh, blockbuster hits with accounting that uh, came back to the talent through profit participation to make a lot of these individuals uh, some money, at least according to what was reported. So this begs the question, do we need to recalculate? Uh, what is the term that's being used? So we get into some terms here. What is gross receipts? What is net profit? How do you calculate these things when you're trying to determine uh, what what the profit participation waterfall is, who gets what. Here's just a fun little example uh, to illustrate for those non-accountants in the audience, uh, some of the terms that we're throwing around. Uh, let's say it takes $100 million to make a film, another 50 million to market, uh, and then it earns 250 million gross at the box office. Uh, one would think that you'd have what? Uh, $100 million in profit? Well, no, because we start with the gross, and you can offset that with commissions, legal fees, incidentals. We can call that adjusted gross, maybe. So now we're introducing a whole other term. And then from there, you've got distribution fees, advertising, publicity, prints. How about you build in the overhead of the studio? So they've got their overhead fees that are in there. Interest and all of these different debts and, and, and things that are going out there. Maybe we take that adjusted gross and we recalculate it. And that's how we get to net profit. Depending what we put into this equation, oops, depending what we put into the equation will depend on where net profit is going to be. So you, you may have 250 million that is a gross receipts or gross revenue, but after you go through negative costs to make the thing overhead to the studio interest and, and everything else that we've got, it may make zero dollars, uh, at least on the books. So that Brings us to an example. Uh, this is just, just a loose example based upon some information that, uh, that was published. 1989, Batman uh, was reportedly grossing 200, over $250 million um, on its uh, receipts, and it reported uh, that there was a $36 million loss. And uh, the, there was a lawsuit that was involved here because there was profit participation. And uh, the lawsuit... Uh, found that the studio was was not unconscionable and that was the that was the the bar that was the standard that needed to be proved by those that were bringing the suit to say that your definition of net profits and your calculation was unconscionable and that was not the case according to uh, the court so the the studio's accounting held true and when you get into these discussions and debates about profit participation and about following the money it really comes down to what terms are used, what's the accounting principles that are used, and it, is it followed? So just for fun, I threw out a couple of different terms that we've seen over the decades, defined proceeds, contingent proceeds, defined receipts, 
defined contingent compensation, contingent bonus. Each of these can be defined in various definitions of whatever agreement that you have, whatever profit participation agreement is there. By just one example that was litigated as well was modified adjusted gross receipts. Here was a definition that related to the TV show Bones. And if you looked at that agreement for Bones and profit participation with the talent, uh, the definition section for modified adjusted gross receipts was 45 pages long. So 45 pages to define terms on how do you calculate and what does it mean as far as these, these kind of pieces of the pie, uh, for example. So let's, let's, uh, let's bring this back, um, introduce, reintroducing uh, Vincent Leone, again, CPA with Miller Kaplan, uh, who's, who's been working with us throughout this whole series. So I, I'd like to throw Vince right Michael, can you hear me? I'm having some technical dif difficulties. I can hear you. I can hear Perfect. you, Vince. Okay, great. You can, you can hear me then. So I, I'm, I'm going to throw you right into the fire here, coming off the bench and, uh, and, <laughs> and jumping right in. I, I just kind of went on a rant here a little bit about all these terms on the film side. Um, on the music side, which I know you've got good experience in, uh, especially with your CPA and audit practice at Miller Kaplan, would you say there's any comparable terms that are coming up in this new streaming distribution world as it relates to music contracts and, and agreements and, and audits that are causing the same type of uh, pain points when determining who gets what? Um, yes, uh, there's definitely similar uh, examples in the in the music space. Um, I think we have a, a slide coming up um, with respect to uh, a recently settled lawsuit, but with uh, respect to uh, uh, specifically streaming royalties, with the slide you uh, pulled up earlier, uh, streaming royalties uh, to uh, uh, that, that are generated or streaming revenue that's generated represents close to eighty percent of every. All, everything that is being generated through consumed music. And so um, the, the labels, it's, it's basically turned into the tech companies are, are, are running the show these days, the Spotify's, the, the Apple's, the, the, the Pandora's, et cetera. And so when they account to the, uh, uh, to the record labels, um, it, it, depending on what the uh, language in a recording artist agreement um, states, it will affect how those revenues are are divvied up so it really it's it's net receipts what what does net receipts mean and people ask me those things all the time and i always say it's whatever the contract says it means so let's go back to that and let me just put out a fun example uh maybe a simplified example that we'll get into more in a few slides but so i've got a music contract we've got some um you know distribution and, and categorically i get certain fees depending on what the channel is that it's being distributed on. And if at the time that I, that I signed this thing, everybody was pressing CDs. So mm -hmm. my focus is CDs and I didn't, maybe we have a catch-all provision, but you know, are you seeing any of these legacy agreements where some of the old language that's still around is now having to be reinterpreted with modern day downloads and streaming that aren't CDs? I mean, do you see that in your, in your line? Yeah. De definitely. The traditional recording agreement will either be based on a, a wholesale price or a, uh, a suggested retail price uh, with a deduction for packaging and then a contractual royalty rate applied to that each unit that's distributed. 
uh, <clears throat> the contracts from the uh, certainly from the 80s and the early 90s did not necessarily anticipate streaming royalties. So um, depending on the specific language of the agreement, there's some legacy artists out there that are getting paid their album rate, which, you know, could be as low as five to 10% on uh, the net receipts of the, of the specific uh, record company. And in addition to that, uh, based on their intercompany agreements with their affiliates overseas, there can be a, uh, a fee retained locally. And so it's quite possible that a recording artist is receiving 5% of uh, 60% of the revenue that's generated overseas because of this internal uh, um, fee that is being deducted at, at the local level. So really have to go back and look at the contract to see where those license revenues uh, fall and how they should be accounted. So let's, let's get everyone back involved again from the audience with regard to um, this terminology game. So let, let me ask another poll here. Uh, everybody out there in the audience, is a streaming device a video device? So without any other context, and I know there's probably some lawyers on the line as well that are like, well, I need more information. Now just, just answer the question. Is a streaming device a video device? We'll let that go for about 10 more seconds to see where we land. Interesting. So as we close it out here on 30 seconds, seems like this audience says 72% no. Well, you are currently not sitting on a bench in LA County, I can tell you that, because LA County found that, in fact, a video a streaming device was a video device, as, at least as it relates to a 1993 agreement uh, with Bill Nye and uh, Buena Vista Television. So there was a lawsuit uh, filed alleging that Bill Nye's uh, distribution rates. So we talked about categories before. There was these categorical definitions of what distribution fee would apply and what would go back to Bill Nye and what would be held as a distribution fee. But now we fast forward in time and we're looking at this term video device, but we're talking about streaming video. So it was up to LA County at the time through expert testimony on both sides to really determine is the streaming device, this, this kind of streaming platform and downloading services, are they video devices, which would put it in a certain distribution category under the 1993 agreement. And the LA court found that in fact, these streaming and downloading services were video devices that were contemplated in the agreement found in favor at the state court of uh, uh, for in favor of uh, Buena Vista Television. So um, these are exactly the terms we're talking about. Are we are we seeing um, you know a, a change just because technology is changing? So you, you're going to the courts are going to go back to the agreement. They're going to look at that agreement. Even Vince said, what what does it say in the agreement first? What do the four corners say? Let's see if we can read that and see if it's contemplated um, that that categorically something is defined in there. Um, so let, let's let's continue um, from there with uh, with a question that is related to other terminology. And, and some may have seen uh, recently a settlement um, with uh, Scarlett Johansson. But even before that, we all know that there's all these different streaming platforms out there, HBO Max, and you've got 
Disney Plus. And what we're seeing is with the pandemic, you have theaters that are shuttered. They're just not, they, 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 they weren't showing the amount of um, uh, you know, full theatrical releases that were expected. Then you've got these other avenues to present it. And the question is, what, what was contemplated in these agreements? Well, in some instances, you've got HBO Max and AT&T and Warner getting together, you know, all under that roof and saying, well, we better renegotiate. We better go out there and, and start paying some of this talent. And the same thing is happening with the other players. Uh, most recently, there was a settlement. The argument with Scarlett Johansson, for those that didn't get in and read the complaint, it was really prefaced that the agreement said wide theatrical release. And the Scarlett Johansson team was essentially saying what that meant in customary terms is exclusivity, not theatrical release and Disney Plus. That's not what was contemplated in the agreement. So again, terms matter, definitions matter. You're going to bring in your own side of it to present your evidence and figure out, you know, these, these new channels, are they are they a breach of contract? Are they an interpretation of the contract? Are we still within the categories? And, uh, and all of these things are coming to light. Many of them are, are certainly uh, being discussed between talent and the, the subscribers and the studios before they get to litigation, of course. Let's shift from movies for a second uh, back to music. And this was one that we mentioned before, and Vince already said intercompany Let's give that a little bit of flavor as well. Uh, Ricky Nelson um, had uh, signed a deal with CBS Records in 76 that was acquired by Sony in 87. As part of that agreement and through the distribution channels internationally that Sony Music Entertainment had, they had a charge. It was an intercompany charge between, between their uh, vertically integrated companies on international streaming revenue. So when you go back to the agreement, uh, that was with the with Ricky Nelson and the estate. It, it was really how was this calculated? What is what is the root number that we're using before we calculate a royalty payment? And how many of those charges or what kind of charge is is proper? Especially when you're not doing the same type of distribution that you were doing 20 years ago. So. If the if the let me ask this to to Vince then going back, in reading this, was it your sense that that the statement is 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 this? If if the companies that are distributing this are no longer making those units that you talked about, but instead, we're we're have a different streaming pathway to get out to that revenue stream, then the intercompany charge is not merited any longer. Is that a good summary from? from what you would take from this? Um, well, I, I would go back to the reporting agreement and um, read how net receipts is defined and to determine if that intercompany charge, you know, is a deductible charge. But on, on the face of, in your example, I, I would say no, this, these royalty percentages should be applied uh, to the uh, revenues that are um, generated at the source. But again, I got you in each individual situation, you should one should be looking to the recording agreement to see uh, what the specific language is. And in this instance, it, it was settled again. Uh, Sony agreed that for a lump sum payment. But there was a class that was uh, that was an opt in uh, class action that 
adjusted future royalty payments calculated on uh, X US streaming revenues uh, by 36 for the qualifying recording. So the, the settlement addressed that, tried to tried to re recalculate that, that position point on what was the percentage that was going to be taken and whether or not that charge applied. Uh, let me kick this back again to Vince in, an, in another form of a question. Um, and that comes with an anecdotal story. I've, I've talked to rights holders in different production companies that have some of these legacy agreements. And uh, to be quite frank, month after month, they're looking at their, their, um, the, the monies being received from their distributor and uh, the money's good. But the accounting isn't necessarily all that transparent. So that I guess that in one sense, it begs the question, do you just let it go? Because uh, you know the money's looking good, it's coming in, but there's not really good insight into how is that calculated overall. So from an auditing perspective, any comments on where we are with, with uh, you know, looking at completeness? Well, I think that's, that's the root of the, the issues. Or are these accountings complete? Are all, is all the revenue that's being generated by the uh, streaming services uh, being included in the calculation of, or allocation among all of the various uh, uh, compositions that are streamed? Uh, the, generally, the, we're not getting very good visibility into that. The record companies aren't necessarily sharing all of that information. And um, to your point, Michael, that uh, because those numbers are getting larger and larger, um, folks are just kind of many, many folks are, are accepting it. Um, but uh, we, we are, we are, we're having difficulty uh, getting visibility to those numbers. And, and part of the, the challenge is for the streaming companies to identify the owners of the various compositions. Um, these are identified by ISRC numbers. Um, the the owners are you know the the labels and the and the publishers and uh, there are many in many instances the uh, streaming companies are uh, offloading to third party providers who have databases of that ownership information and so they're offloading the accounting to uh, to those folks to uh, to identify the the owners and and distribute the revenue and I know that you and I have talked offline. Uh, about some of these nonprofit collectives. I know that we've talked with Mechanical Licensing, licensing yep. Collective. Uh, any, anything you can say there about what they're doing to make some of this database repository more accessible? Sure. The, it's been a, it's an organization that uh, was uh, set up by the U.S. Copyright Office. Um, I believe it started at the beginning of this year. And it's an opportunity for songwriters and, and, and publishers to register their copyrights in order to get properly paid. Um, and there's a, again, there's, there's a lot of, I believe there's, there's, there's some identified, unidentified uh, revenue, black box revenue. And so by registering these, these copyrights, it enables the, uh, uh, the publishers and songwriters to have their ownership recognized and to ultimately get paid. So that's the Mechanical Licensing Collective, lots of good information out there and they do a good job also with their um, publicity and um, marketing department putting out good information. And, and, and not, to, not to get too much detail, that relates to the mechanical royalty aspect to a stream, um, as opposed to the performance uh, royalty, which is accounted to the performing rights societies, specifically ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. Right. 
So we've mentioned a number of times here, this whole question of black box calculations. What are these streamers doing? So we flip back really quickly to a very apropos, timely commentary recently published that Netflix reportedly paid $21 million for, um, for this limited series Squid Game, which some of you may have seen on their platform service. Um, and then they published a valuation of around 900 million based on their internal proprietary metric. And you think about that, you've got somewhere between 100 and 150 million viewers, uh, subscribers have come up with Netflix. So clearly there's been some calculus done to say, all right, we've got this many subscribers, this many viewers, and they attach some value to that. So they, 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 took, a, they took an investment of $20 million to put it out there, not knowing whether it was going to hit. And internally, they valued it at 900 million, whatever that means. So you've got this question of what is the real value? You've got these streaming services and you've got a comparison between the two. And it all comes down to how do you calculate that in the streaming world? How do you get that down to find what is that, that dollar worth um, and to whom is it paid? So let's take this as a background and let's go again and apply this to music. This is something that Vince shared with me previously. And let's look at this dollar split. Uh, Vince, can you walk us through in the music space, talking about digital service providers in music, who's getting that dollar earned? Break it down, explain to us what this pie chart really means to you. And I'm sorry, the numbers didn't show up. Um, just, no just no worries. So in, in uh, 2018, uh, uh, new rates were negotiated between or were, were set by the streaming services that are they're still being challenged by the, uh, the NMPA. But having said that, currently, uh, the dollar is split approximately um, uh, 29% of the revenue is held at the digital service provided, the DSP. Uh, 58% is accounted to the label who is responsible to account to the recording artist. And the other, the balance 13% is accounted to the, uh, to the publisher who is responsible to account to the songwriter. So approximately half of that is to the performing rights societies, uh, ASCAP, BMI, and uh, CSAC receive about six and a half percent. And the other six and a half are accounted for the mechanical share uh, to the publisher. Uh, the this this agreement um, ends, or that this method of accounting ends in 2023, and the DSPs have proposed lower rates going forward, starting in 2023. And uh, those. Rates have not been published uh, to the to the public, but the NMPA has countered uh, with revised percentages to the uh, music publishers, and they've provided four separate scenarios that they'd be willing to accept: twenty uh, percent of all of the revenue, forty uh, percent of whatever the labels negotiate, a uh, dollar and a half per subscriber, or fifteen uh, percent of a penny per play. Um, I, I can't speak to the uh, the per play amount or the per subscriber amount, but the other percentages are roughly sixty percent higher than uh, what they're getting now. So the, there's def they're definitely at an impasse where the streaming services are proposing a lower uh, royalty 
percent uh, to the uh, publishers and songwriters and the uh, the industry group that represents them is proposing a 60% or so increase. So can you just apply apply that, excuse me, a little bit more? Because there's a lot of mixed information out there with regard to what what a set, what the label can make and what the actual, um, you know, what the artist can receive with the streaming service. Uh, but can you, can you paint the audience um, somewhat of the clearest picture that, that you can about current and what this NMPA counterproposal may mean to artists or those that are trying to, to make it with the streaming platforms? Well, certainly the, the labels have, have utilized their leverage that, um, the streaming services need a license from the labels in order to stream the, the music. Um, prior to uh, satellite and streaming uh, consumption, uh, the labels uh, never received any revenue from terrestrial radio. It was historically used as a, as a marketing tool. And the only royalties that a radio station had to pay were to the, uh, to the publishers and songwriters. So when um, uh, when the digital uh, medium um, came about, the labels negotiated a, a, a very very healthy royalty for the for the right to use the master, and so the dollar you know got split up. The obviously the DSPs need to uh, need to make make a profit and. Uh, it, you know, it, in this situation, I think the songwriters and publishers got the short end of the stick and, and they're trying to kind of grab some of that percentage back um, uh, for the use of their, uh, uh, their rights. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to see how this comes about before the, the current agreement uh, concludes, right? Yeah. And like I said, the, these current rates are still being challenged by the NMPA. So it's uh, a <laughs> it's very it's it's very very messy. So you know we we've gone through this. We've talked about a little on the financing side. We've we've touched on all aspects of terminology that's used and how we break down accounting methods. Um, any other comments just to kind of conclude on this point before I ask one uh, opinion question of you, Vince? Uh, anything sure. to kind of frame us up? So what one of the the, the thing that certainly is is uh, discussed in the media and there have been dozens and dozens of articles written about is, you know, certain recording artists will, you know, publish the uh, number of streams that they've, uh, they're, they've enjoyed through their music and, and also the, the, what they, what they're calling the paltry amount of royalties they're receiving. So it's the, the way the money flows is like I said, 58% of the revenue goes to the label, then it's up to the label to account to the uh, recording artists, their contractual share. Um, one may view uh, this type of revenue as a license, and generally a recording artist uh, can receive up to 50% of the revenue from a license. Um, in, many in, in many instances, the record companies are viewing this as, as uh, paying the, uh, the contractual uh, record royalty, the royalty that would, would have been applied to a vinyl distribution, a cassette distribution, or a CD distribution, and it's a much, much lower percentage. So um, it makes a, a sense in my mind that when a recording artist is complaining about the, the paltry royalty they're receiving from streaming, it, it's a result of that 58% getting split even more. And to go back to what we talked about earlier, you know, there could be another up to 40% bite taken out as a, uh, 
uh, foreign retention. Um, so it, it's uh, it, it can the way that the the dollars are flowing is it's flowing through a number of different hands. And each hand has an agreement that's connecting the hands. So uh, yeah. we go to the, you know, we go to those terms, and like you said, is is this part of a distribution or is it part of a licensing, uh, which which could apply different rates? Correct. And and again, each uh, you'd, you'd have to look to each individual uh, reporting agreement to make that determination. So thanks for that, Vince, and 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 thanks again, everybody uh, on the line. I have one more question, which is just a fun question we've been kicking around on on our side here, I figured I'd ask Vince, and that is, you know, we've talked about mechanical licenses, we've talked about these, these licenses to allow these streaming services to take that sound recording and, and uh, in, in play, but we've got this, this other license out there, the synchronization, with re, which relates to visual medium and the, the overlay of, of the music with that. And I keep thinking, and I was talking to some colleagues about sync licenses, you've got to go back to, you know, the rights uh, holder and, and, and renegotiate. It's not like there's an equivalent society that just kind of streamlines this, but maybe, maybe there should be. We're walking into the metaverse world where everybody wants to be in a, a visual medium with, with other uh, potentially unlicensed or licensed, uh, uh, you know, musical works. Uh, in, in short, Vince, what are your thoughts? Do, will we see some equivalent uh, to a synchronization licensing society, which simplifies that process? Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I'd like to give you a more definitive answer. Uh, it, just the co what complicates this more is it could be a separate set of ownership for the video rights to the uh, that are being synchronized to the uh, to the music. So um, it's 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 one thing to uh, to negotiate with a, a huge body. That represents the labels or the labels individually, and then with the NMPA, which represents the publishers and the uh, and the songwriters. I'm not aware of of uh, a organization like that that could negotiate on behalf of the owners of the the video content. So um, that's the best I could come up with in the last 24 hours, Michael. Since you asked me that question, <laughs> fair fair enough. We always like to see. I mean. Uh, the, you know, the word of the month is metaverse, uh, and, and I just want to take that and see where we're, where we're going to be consuming all this content, and uh, some would like to argue we're, we're not going to be consuming it on this plane, so I figured I'd toy that around a bit, but um, it's always a pleasure, Vince. Thanks so much for oh, thank you, spending Mike. time with us here. Thanks, for, uh, thanks again to Bonded uh, Media Capital, uh, and Tyler and Grady. Thank you to our uh, partners here and and for closing remarks uh, I'd, I'd like to leave it off with uh, with Henry you if you'd like Henry thanks uh, Michael actually um, it's going to be very brief um, I guess uh, we should be having our fourth and final webinar hopefully before January and certainly uh, we will be planning uh, spending a lot of time in terms of working with all the partners and and all the co-hosts on putting together a live forum, hopefully uh, the second half of 2022. And I do encourage our audience to really, uh, you know, uh, spend, them, spend some time between now and, and the next one uh, so that we can be better prepared to put together a live forum to, to connect our entertainment, I guess, uh, industry here 
with uh, that of Hong Kong and Asia Pacific, and that would be our ultimate goal. And uh, that is a great uh, discussion. Thank you, Michael and Fian and all of the panelists and speakers and certainly Joe. Um, that officially uh, conclude our webinar today and uh, have a good day and good weekend. Thank you. Thank you.